0: All right, well, we're finishing our study of 1 Corinthians. And for the last few weeks, we've been in chapter 15, which is just an amazing chapter. And, uh, and, and we, we've been in this kind of mini series within this broader series of 1 Corinthians that we're calling Living in Light of Eternity. And today we're going to pick up in the last chapter of 1 Corinthians, chapter 16. And I think this chapter hits home for many of us because. There are people in our culture, maybe even people uh, here who, uh, and you look at the research, it says there are people who are increasingly spiritual but not religious. And a lot of people uh, who say that, a lot of my friends who say that when you press in, what they usually mean is I'm open to spirituality in general, but, but not obligated to any specific expression of spirituality, not a particular form of organized religion. So they say I'm kind of a free agent. Right. I, not necessarily committed to a particular religion. Well, there's also a Christian version of that. That's increasingly popular as well and, and often for understandable reasons. There's a lot of Christians who will say I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm not actively committed to any particular church. Kind of a free agent with my Christianity. Follow Jesus, not active in a local church. And listen, that used to be me. Even as a pastor's son growing up in the church, even making a decision to follow Jesus, I thought the church was washed. I thought it was too traditional. I had seen a lot of stuff in a whole lot of churches, uh, a lot of mess, a lot of drama uh, as a pastor's kid experienced and seen a lot of hurt and issues and, and honestly just thought I could just Follow Jesus without the kind of organized, traditional commitment to a local church. But here's what I want to show you in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I want to show you one reason why I'm excited to be a part of a local church, this local church. And I want to show you one of the ways God invites us to participate in the local church. So let me read these first four verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Here's verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes... Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no, uh, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also they will go with me. Now, I know some of y'all are like, there's nothing in them verses that makes me excited to be, you're talking about like giving and giving money. How does that make me excited about being a part of of a church? Well, Well, just hang with me here because listen, throughout history, Christians have always been on the leading edge of generosity. In every society where Christianity has taken root, Christians have been on the leading edge of generosity. And I wish I had more time to unpack this, but you can read more about this in historian Rodney Stark's work or, or just throughout church history. But you think about the legacy of generosity within the Christian church. You think about how it affected literally, uh, literacy and education. You think about it when it comes to medicine, the invention of modern day hospitals. When it comes to science, the arts, civil rights, help for the poor. Like this is the legacy of Christian generosity throughout the history of the church. And that legacy is one of the reasons I'm excited to be a part of that history in a local church. There are needs God wants to meet and purposes God wants to accomplish. And here's what he does. He sends his provision to us so that it flows through us. Listen, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way before, but God has plans for your money. God has plans for your money. But there's a problem. There's a problem. And it's illustrated in a text message I got from a friend of mine who's one of the pastors here in our church. And I shot him a text uh, in preparation for an upcoming Sunday. And he was like, hey man, I'm so sorry. Not gonna be there uh, tomorrow. I'm like, bro, you're a pastor. How are you not gonna be there tomorrow? He's like, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna be there tomorrow. And he showed me why. He sent me this picture right here. This is his kitchen. In their brand new house that they had just moved into and his family had to move immediately out of. And what they ended up finding, finding through just some unfortunate circumstances was that there was a pipe. It was the, the washing machine and, and sink line that was underneath the slab that was constantly getting backed up. And so the stuff that was supposed to flow out of the house was getting stuck and it was calling all kinds of sensory problems. Let's just leave it there. OK. And so they had to bring somebody in to literally like dig up the floor and the foundation of the house in order to unclog the pipes. And I think that's the kind of work God wants to do in our hearts through this chapter, chapter 16. Because let me ask you, are God's resources flowing through you or are they getting stuck? Let me give you a little bit of background before we dive more into chapter 16 here. During this time period that where Paul is writing this letter, the Christians in Jerusalem were facing severe poverty for a number of reasons. The Bible doesn't specifically list those reasons, but we know some of the context because of his historical records from that time period. So, first of all, Jerusalem was similar to a lot of major cities that we see around the world today. It was a dense, overpopulated city, and there was intense poverty. On top of that, there was widespread suffering because of a severe famine throughout the region. And you see this referenced in Acts chapter 11. So the general poverty of the city, a severe famine, and then on top of all of that, the believers in Jerusalem were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah and they worshiped him as God, and that brought them into sharp conflict with their community. They were cut off from the financial assistance programs that were offered by their local synagogues. And many of them were even rejected by their own families. And so the believers in Jerusalem were in a desperate situation. And it makes me think about our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan right now. Heartbreaking. And listen, as followers of Jesus who have God's revealed word, we have to see these kinds of world events through through a lens that's not just a political lens or a media lens, but it's through a spiritual lens as we understand God's work of the gospel throughout the world. And some people don't realize this, but but the gospel is spreading in Afghanistan. I read one reporter this week who said the Afghan church is a unique community, mostly aged 40 and younger. They are all Muslim converts. It's one, listen, it says it's one of the fastest growing churches in the world. Since they're a tiny church now doubled in size, they're considered very fast growing. There are perhaps only 2000 people, but they are an important force in Afghanistan simply because of the force that the gospel is. Because of the love of Jesus, the reach they have is a real thing in a dark Taliban shadowed country. Listen, God is at work, but there are brothers and sisters who are suffering, who are forced to flee and seek refuge in other countries or are stuck under the constant imminent threat of persecution and even death. And that has to break our hearts. Just like the suffering in Jerusalem among brothers and sisters in Christ broke Paul's heart. And so Paul has been partnering with the churches that he started in different regions in order to collect donations for a Jerusalem relief fund. And if it were 2021, he would just set up a GoFundMe and send out the link. But it's the first century. And so he had to do it the old fashioned way, sending letters and traveling from city to city to collect the donations. And so he partnered with the church in Macedonia. You read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and in Galatia, which he mentioned right here in 1 Corinthians. And now he's working with the Corinthian church to coordinate their collection. And just like many of the other issues Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians, he's responding to some of the questions that they had written him about this relief effort. And what we see, what I want us to draw out here is four principles for giving to and through the local church. All right, you ready? Here's four principles. Here's the first one. Our giving should be accountable are giving to and through the church should be accountable. Now, I know that's a little bit of an odd place to start, but I start there because I realize that a lot of us get tense when pastors preach about money. Some of y'all are tense already, right? And some of that is for good reason. Because as all of us are aware There is shadiness sometimes in church and there have been scandals, sometimes very public scandals, always very damaging scandals in terms of how churches and preachers and pastors have handled money. So much so that it's made many of us skeptical to give to any church. And let's be honest, especially a mega church. And so as we talk about giving, it's important for us to to say up front how important financial integrity and accountability is. And you see that in verses two and three, how, how he has the church appoint trusted couriers and how he provides them with a certification letter. That probably verified the amount that was collected. So when it got to Jerusalem, they knew the money was still there. Paul, he put in place a variety of measures in order to ensure financial accountability. And he's very clear about why. So in his follow-up letter to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, he writes this in chapter 8. Listen to what he says in verse 20. He says, We take this course. He's talking about the financial accountability measures that they put in place. He said, we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable. Listen, not only in the Lord's sight but also in the sight of man. In other words, Paul is saying we go out of our way to be above reproach in the way we handle money. Listen to me. Church members should know what's happening with church money. And this is why our members here at McLean Bible Church vote on the annual budget. Not every church does it the exact same way, but it's why here our members vote on the annual budget. It's why we have certain measures in place. And you can read about those measures in detail in our membership orientation booklet. But specific measures like an annual third-party audit and other measures that we put in place for financial accountability. Now, as we'll see in Acts chapter 4, church members entrust the church leaders to prayerfully direct and manage those resources for the glory of God, but church members should expect that to be done with integrity, transparency, and accountability. So out of the gate, I want us to see from God's word that our giving should be accountable. But secondly, our giving should be personal. It should be personal. Every Christian has a responsibility to personally contribute to the ministry of the local church look at what paul writes here in in first corinthians 16 verse 1 it says now concerning the collection for the saints as i directed the churches of galatia so do you also look at verse 2 on the first day of every week each one of you how many christians is that in the greek it's all okay each one of you is to put aside and save. Now, as soon as I read that, I know what some of us might be thinking. We might be thinking, Mike, I'm, I already donate to a lot of good causes. Like I, I don't necessarily prioritize giving to the church for some of the reasons that you mentioned. I might give a little to the church, but honestly, I like being able to just give to meet specific needs that, that I'm interested in. And I think a lot of us, Feel that way. I know for sure a lot of millennials and Gen Z feel that way. And giving to causes and nonprofits outside the church is a good thing. God wants us to be generous people in general in ways that bless all kinds of people. But I want you to notice something in Scripture, because if you are a follower of Jesus, Scripture is our authority. So from the earliest stages of the Christian church... In Acts chapter 2, you see believers in local churches sharing their resources and partnering together to make a broader impact. Acts chapter 2, verse 44, it says, And all people who were together had all things in common, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And we won't have time to look at it, but if you look at Acts chapter 4, you see a process beginning to emerge as the church is growing and becoming more complex. You see this process emerging where the apostles would collect donations and then distribute those to people in need. And they didn't just distribute it randomly. The apostles eventually appointed leaders who put a system in place to make sure the resources were being managed effectively and fairly. And you see that in Acts 6 and also in later examples in Paul's letters. Like, for example, when he talks to Timothy about having a system to care for widows in Ephesus. So the church pulled their resources together in order to care for people inside their local church and to care for and reach people outside of their local church. And that's what we see here in 1 Corinthians 16. Paul is instructing these believers to personally contribute to the ministry of their church. Each believer is to put aside a portion of their income give it to the church, and then the church would save that money week to week in order to make one large donation. Now, I want you to just think about why, because I know there's many of us that are still like, "Eh, I don't know about giving to the local church yet. I want you to think about why. First of all, practically, we can accomplish more corporately than we can individually. So we pool our resources together as a church family in order to make a broader impact. But it's also theological, not just practical. Because when we give to our local church, we are sharing our resources in a way that expresses and strengthens the unity that we have as a family. So I want you to think about this. Think about this. There was so much cultural hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Generations of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And yet these Gentile believers in Corinth are making personal sacrifices and giving in order to express unity and solidarity with Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Their giving was a way of rising above the social divisions of their day. It was a way of saying our unity in Jesus supersedes our differences in culture. And that was a uniquely Christian priority in the first century. And there are uniquely Christian priorities that should motivate us to personally give to and through the local church today. Because there are some causes that if we as Christians don't give to war, who will? Who else is going to give toward the spread of the gospel? Who else is going to sacrifice and give to protect those whom society discards as irrelevant or inconvenient or even less than human? Who else is going to get help, uh, Going to give to help meet the needs of persecuted Christians who've lost everything, brothers and sisters in Christ, All over the world, who have lost everything but are still faithfully following Jesus? Who else is gonna give to help train and support men and women preparing to be missionaries and ministers of the gospel? If God's people don't partner together to support God's purposes, who will? And so, yes. Yes, be generous and support all kinds of causes that bless all kinds of people. But if you are a follower of Jesus, God invites us to prioritize and participate in the unique Christian work that he wants to do through his church and when we do that when we partner together together by giving to and through the local church we all get the joy of seeing how God is using the resources that he has entrusted to us as the church family man I wish I had more time to just talk about that in the life of our church like when I think about what we accomplished in a pandemic of giving away over $8 million worth of food to, to support those who couldn't make ends meet. Like when I, when I think about it, and listen, I've only been here for 14, close to 15 years. Some of y'all have been here for like 30 years. When I think about here at our Tysons location, right across the parking lot about Jill's house, and the ways that so many of you sacrificed and personally invested to make that a reality, This safe haven, this respite facility for children with special needs and for their families I could go on and on and on about how God has used this church family as we've sacrificed and pulled our resources together in order to make a broader impact for the glory of God. And we get the great privilege. It's one of the reasons I'm excited to be a part of the local church. We get the great privilege to be a part of how God is working in the world. And so one encouragement to parents with young kids. Listen, it's our responsibility to train our kids when it comes to giving. You know, when I was growing up, you know, my parents and and my parents are are watching right now. You know, my dad's a pastor, but they're on vacation. And uh, so I'm like extra nervous uh, to preach in front of them. But uh, listen, my, my parents uh, w- would have us put a portion of our allowance in, in like our, our offering envelopes every week. And uh, even before we, we got allowance, I think we were like toddlers or something like that. I don't know, this might've been child abuse, but, but they would like give us a dollar and then make us bring it to church on Sunday. And since my dad was usually preaching, We would be sitting with my mom every week and when it was time for the offering, she would nudge us and we would put our church envelopes, sometimes reluctantly, like in the offering basket. And listen, they taught us from a young age that God loves a cheerful giver. And that giving to and through the local church was an essential part of the Christian life. And listen, they were old school, y'all. They weren't with this new parenting types like that. They required that for as long as we were living in their house, okay. So even as high school students, as we were working our first jobs, they taught us to give the first 10% of our paychecks to support the ministry of the church. And listen, I was a pastor's kid, so I'd be like, but it's kind of like giving money to myself because you get paid by. He was like, don't try to use that as a cop-out. You better give. You know what I'm saying? And listen, every Sunday I would like see my sneaker budget dwindling away. It was as if I could see like Jordans and phone posits and Air Maxes just floating away in them little gold offering plates with the, with the purple velvet at the bottom as, as, as a church. Some of y'all know exactly, I grew up in Baptist church, you know exactly what it was like. But they were teaching me that as Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And that has stuck with me my whole life. Parents, let me encourage you. Don't underestimate the impact of your faithful instruction and personal example to your kids in this area. It models for them what it means to live a life that is devoted to following Jesus. So listen, if you give online or if your kids aren't normally with you during Sunday worship, you need to think about how you will intentionally train your kids to make giving a personal priority in their lives. And so every Christian has a personal responsibility to contribute to the ministry of the local church, but we all have freedom to personally decide how much to contribute to the ministry of the local church. And Paul makes that clear in a follow-up letter he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He's referring to the same collection we've been reading about, and listen to what he says, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. He says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The amount you give is a personal decision. And God wants you to make that decision willingly, prayerfully, and joyfully. Now, if you grew up in church like me, That probably raises another question for you. Well, what about tithing? Aren't Christians required to give 10%? And we've talked about this in in depth. We talked about it when we preached on giving as one of the 12 traits of a biblical church. But let me just give you a super quick summary. For those of you that might be new to church or to the Bible, tithing is an Old Testament concept. And it means giving 10% of your resources back then, whether it was money or livestock or crops, giving 10% of your resources as an offering to God. And God's people weren't just required to give one tithe. And this is where there's some misunderstanding about how this worked in the Old Testament. They were actually required to give multiple tithes to support the priests, to help cover the expenses of the temple and uh, our religious festivals, and also to provide for the poor. And so as you read through the Old Testament, it's actually hard to pinpoint precisely how much the people of Israel were required to give, but it likely averaged just over 20% every year. And that didn't include other kinds of optional offerings that were given throughout the year on top of that. And all of those tithes and offerings were a part of living in the nation of Israel under the Mosaic law. But now through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God's people live under the new covenant. No longer governed by the Mosaic law. So the principle of sacrificial giving still applies, and we see that all over the New Testament. But we are no longer governed by the specific giving laws that we read about in the Old Testament. Now, that doesn't mean tithing is bad, but here's how I would put it. It's okay to use tithing as a guide, but tithing shouldn't be the goal. Like the goal as new covenant Christians who have had our hearts transformed by this generous God, the goal should never be to just hit 10%. The goal is to be as generous as you possibly can with the resources God has given you. And that's the principle we see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, that our giving should be personal, but it should also be proportional. Meaning we should adjust our giving based on our income. So look at verse 2 again. It says, On the first day of every week, each one of you is to, is to put aside and save, listen, as he or she may prosper. And you see this same principle in Acts chapter 11, verse 29. It says, In the proportion that any of the disciples had means... Each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brothers living in Judea. In other words, we should see an increase in income as an opportunity to be more generous in our giving. And I think, as a general rule of thumb, that includes all of our income, not just our main paycheck. So, our side hustles, our signing bonuses, like our sales commission, All of our income, and this is not just for adults with like full time careers. OK, this is for college students with your internship, high school students, you coming off your nice little summer job right now, middle school students who get an allowance. This is for all of us who are followers of Jesus, that when we're making a decision about how much to give, we should base it on all of the different ways God has provided for us in the ways that he has blessed us. Why? Well, because as Christians, we acknowledge that all of our resources ultimately belong to and come from God. And I love Paul's description of God in First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Listen to, to how Paul describes God. He's writing to Timothy, this young pastor, and he says, As for the rich in this present age, which is all of us relative to the poverty around the world, As for the rich in this present age... Charge them not to be haughty, not to be arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but to set their hopes on God. Listen to how he describes God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And some of us need to hear that description of God. This is the God that we worship. God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Think about what that teaches us about God. It teaches us that God loves to provide for us. It's not a chore, it's a hobby for him. He loves to provide for us. He wants us to receive and to enjoy his goodness with grateful, worshipful hearts. But he doesn't just want us to enjoy his goodness, he wants us to enjoy being a part of extending his goodness to others in need. And y'all, this is where it gets fun. This is where God invites us to use the ways he's blessed us to bless others so much so that he makes us a promise. Listen to Paul again in Second Corinthians chapter nine, verse eight. And this isn't prosperity theology. This is Bible. Listen to what God says through the Apostle Paul. Paul. Chapter 9, verse 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times. Pause. Like in case you just think there's some situation where it's not going to apply in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. He says you will be enriched in every way. Why? Why does God bless us? And this is where we depart from prosperity theology. Why does God bless us? Listen, to be generous. In every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God and listen to me y'all this is where it gets fun I'm telling you this is where it gets fun because generosity is the key to living in this mysterious divine economy it is the key to living a life of meaning and purpose and adventure with God, where we, where we surrender ourselves and our resources to God and we gladly participate in the work that God is doing through us in the world. And this is why Paul encourages the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. Listen to what he says. He says, But as you excel in everything, In faith, in speech, in knowledge, in our earnestness and in our love for you. He says, you excel in so many areas. He says, see that you also excel in this act of grace, this this practice of giving and generosity. Listen, do you ever think about giving as something to excel in? as something to to get better and better at, to strive toward. He says, excel in giving. And this is so different from how our culture tells us to think about our money. Like Our temptation will always be to see an increase in income as an opportunity to increase our standard of living. And listen, that's not always a bad thing. Like we've already seen, God loves to provide what we need. And there are some of us that grew up in poverty. There are some of you who migrated to this country for for better opportunity. It's not a bad thing to want to, to, to experience an increase in the standard of living for your family. But God wants us to see an increase in income, not just as an opportunity to increase our standard of living, but first and foremost, mainly as an opportunity to increase our standard of giving. And David has said this before, and I think it's worth repeating. God gives us enough for us, but he gives us excess for others. And let me show you how serious God is about this. Let me show you how serious God is about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 12. Listen to what Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes. He says this. He says, For if the readiness to give is there... It is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Now look closely at what Paul writes next. Verse 13, he says, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that look at this next phrase, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that at a later time, their abundance may supply your need. And here it goes again. Why should Christians with abundance help people and particularly in this context, Christians in need? He says that phrase again, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Notice Paul repeats the word fairness twice. For Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit... Giving to the poor through the local church and in this context in particular, giving giving through the local church to poor brothers and sisters in the global church is not just an issue of charity. It is an issue of fairness, of equity. This is straight out of God's word. And this is like fingernails on a chalkboard for so many of us because it grates against our individualism. Like, look at what God is teaching us. It is unfair. It is inequitable to hoard more than you need when you know others don't have what they need. And this isn't an economic philosophy. This is a spiritual responsibility as followers of Jesus. And this to raise all kinds of questions about how we steward the resources God Has given us not under compulsion by the government, but motivated by the authority of God's word and the generosity that God has displayed toward us. It should raise all kinds of questions that we wrestle with honestly and biblically and prayerfully before God about how we steward the resources He's given us. And it's gonna look different for all of us, so we gotta give each other a lot of grace and respect each other's personal convictions. On how to live this out. There's no rule to dictate how much we should spend on ourselves and how much God expects us to give. But C.S. Lewis gave a helpful challenge in his book, Mere Christianity. He wrote this listen, he says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. He says, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, Listen, he says, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be, listen to what he says, there ought to be things we should like to do And cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them what he's saying here is he's resonating the teaching of scripture that as Christians we should give till it hurts like we should feel some limitation because of how radically generous we're being and this is the kind of radical generosity we read about in early Christian communities like we talked about at the beginning of the sermon so why Why, as we land on this final point, why have Christians always been on the leading edge of this kind of sacrificial generosity? In every society throughout church history, why have Christians been at the forefront of digging deep and sacrificing In order to serve others, here's why. Because their giving was an expression of a deeper motivation, a deeper sense of joy that was rooted in the gospel. Their giving was an act of worship. And that's our final principle. Our giving should be worshipful, y'all. It should be worshipful. So you think about when Paul told them to collect this money. Verse 2, he says, collect it on the first day of the week. He's talking about Sundays when just like us, believers would gather for worship. And they would have offering boxes where people could drop the money that they had put aside during the week. And then week to week, the Corinthian church would collect and save that money in order to present Paul with one large donation when he showed up. Now, Sunday was the most practical day for them to collect each person's contribution because that's when they would all be together. But again, it wasn't just practical. It was deeply theological. It was worshipful. So so think about it. Have you ever wondered why Christians gather for worship on Sunday? These early Jewish Christians started to gather for worship on Sunday instead of Saturday, which was the Sabbath. Well, the reason for that. Is very clear. You read it in the Gospel of John, you see it throughout church history, it's because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection. So if you think about Sabbath, you read about it in the book of Genesis. It it's, it's symbolizes this day, the seventh day, after God rested from his work in creation. And God invites his people then to rest from their work and to take a day to celebrate God's work in creation and to look forward to the future rest that the Messiah would bring. Now, fast forward to Christians. And what does the resurrection mean? The resurrection meant that this was the dawning of a new creation. That in Christ, old things have passed away and all things have become new. And so the resurrection changed everything for these early Jewish Christians. It changed absolutely everything. And so, listen, if you're not a follower of Jesus, what I'm about to say is the most important thing you will hear in this sermon. It is the motivation for everything that we do as Christians. They were motivated by the gospel this true but good news that every single one of us has sinned against this God who created us and and provided for us. And we have looked at him and said, God, I don't need you. I don't want you. I will live my own way. We have sinned and offended a holy and righteous God. And in his justice, God says he will, he has to hold us accountable for that sin. And so we owe a debt to God because of our sin that we cannot pay. We cannot earn our way out of that debt. We cannot pay God off with our good works because it is never enough to reach his standards. But God loved us so much. And because he knew that we could not ever pay that debt, we could never earn forgiveness, he sent Jesus to live a perfectly righteous life that we could never live. And he sent Jesus to die on the cross in our place for our sins. In his death, Jesus was paying the debt that you and I owe for our sins. But three days later, he got up from the grave. And here's why that's such good news. Because what it meant is that the check of Jesus' sacrifice cleared the bank. It was proof positive that God accepted his sacrificial payment on our behalf. And so listen, the resurrection of Jesus gives us confidence that when we put our trust in the sacrifice of Jesus, that our sins will be paid off. Our debt will be wiped away. We can be forgiven and reconciled to God and receive his Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out. And we have the opportunity to look forward to this future inheritance that we could not earn, that Jesus earned for us, that is unfading and imperishable and undefiled, that will never be taken away from us. This is the good news of the gospel. And so listen to me, wherever you're watching from, what God wants you to hear most, if you are not a Christian, what he wants you to hear most is not, you need to give to this church. What he wants you to hear most is how much he has given you. He loved you so much that he gave his one and only son so that like me, you could experience his grace. And when you stand before God, you don't have to stand in fear of judgment, but right now you can accept his gift to turn away from your sin and to put your trust in what Jesus has done. And God says you will be saved. And for every single one of us who have trusted in Jesus, who do worship God. That's what motivates our giving and our generosity. It's what motivated the Corinthian church they set aside their contribution in preparation for worship, and then they gave their contribution as an act of worship in their Sunday gathering. And this is why our financial donations to the church are often called offerings. Not to earn God's forgiveness but offerings of worship in response to having received God's goodness and his forgiveness. And so some of us do that when we gather in person. We go old school when the buckets pass by. But I know it's 2021 and most of our financial transactions are electronic. Spoiler alert, God knew that would happen. Right. He's the one that in his goodness and grace made it possible for have this technology. So it's fine to give online. It's fine. Like me, even automate your giving automatically. But however and whenever you give, it should be done out of the overflow of worshipful hearts. It is a privilege a privilege to take the resources God has blessed us with and to invest them in the work he's doing in and through the local church. It is stepping into the legacy of the Christian church for the last 2,000 years and the ways God used them to impact the, the society around them and cultures far from them. It is to step into this divine economy of grace that starts with God's initiative toward us in the gospel. And so because God is generous, we as Christians are generous. I pray that that would be that would be the headline in the story of our church family here. Let me pray for us. Father, I I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace and your generosity, Lord. And even as I pray, Lord, I can I can imagine in people's hearts, some people might be feeling like, oh, I want to give more, but I just don't have that much. I just don't, I'm, I'm, I'm in debt. I, I just, I'm strapped. I just don't have a lot to give, God. And I just, I thank you that you see our hearts. Like that poor widow who just gave the little bit she had. God, I thank you that you see our hearts, our worshipful hearts Lord, where even if it's a little bit, God is given in gratitude and worship to you, God. So Lord, I pray that we would not be weighed down by guilt, but that we would be free and motivated, God, to just just offer you an expression of our gratitude, whatever that looks like in this season of life. Thank you for the ways that you've blessed us, God. And Father, I pray for those who may be hearing the gospel for the first time or maybe the gospel is resonating for the first time. I pray, Lord, that you would work in their hearts, that they would see and sense and be overwhelmed by how gracious and generous you have been to them through the work of Jesus, God. And I pray you would draw their hearts to you, that even now, right now today, God, that they would express their faith in you, Lord, that they would turn from their sin and put their trust in Jesus today. And Lord, I pray that through the resources we give as a church family, that thousands and thousands and thousands of people would have that same response to your grace and be changed for all of eternity. God, we love you, but only because you first loved us. God, we give but only because you first gave to us in ways that caused our hearts to come alive. God, our response is to praise you. We do that in Jesus' name, amen, amen.